You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. All right. I'm going to welcome everyone back to your seats. And after you do that, go ahead and open in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. That's where we, we will be this morning, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And I'll just take a moment to uh, introduce myself. If we haven't met yet, my name is Michael. I'm the pastoral resident here at River City Church. It's a privilege to preach from God's Word to you all this morning. If you don't own a Bible, we actually have some displayed at our resource table right back there. Uh, we encourage you to grab one of those, uh, use it today, and take it home as our gift to you. And we'll be on page 980 in those Bibles. Philippians 2 is where we will be this morning. We are continuing our Advent series today, which we have titled Foolishness to the World. And as Pastor Jeremy shared when we started this series, the coming of Jesus appeared foolish to human wisdom. And the incarnation in particular shatters our categories for what a God should do. We like power and strength. But our God came in humility and weakness. We like efficiency and speed. But it took thousands of years after the first sin in the Garden of Eden for Jesus to come and dwell with us. So throughout our series, we have been talking about different aspects of Jesus' incarnation that seem foolish to the world, but are an expression of God's infinite wisdom. And today we're going to talk about the humility of the incarnation where we will see the humility that appeared so foolish to us turned out to be the humility that is the most glorious and leads us to our worship of our God who is with us. So let's learn more about Jesus' humility at work in Philippians 2. Would you stand with me as I read God's word? Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift that it is to us, your people. How in it we see that you are characterized by perfect humility and that is good. And as people, we are humbled by our limitations and our sin, but you humbled yourself to save us from our sin and to make us into new people with redeemed character that is like yours and will last forever. Even though the grass withers and the flowers fade, your word will stand forever. So as we meditate on this passage, we ask for your help. Would you open our eyes that we may behold the wondrous things found in your word? It's in your name we pray, amen. Well, I'm sure many of you have seen the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. 
If you haven't, it's a Christmas time classic. So go enjoy watching it with family and friends this holiday season. The movie tells the story of George Bailey, a business leader who sacrificed his dreams to help others in his community. And at the climax of the movie, when George feels at his lowest, he's reminded by Clarence the Angel of the many lives George has changed because he considered the needs of others above his own. And for a movie that is so beautifully produced and has captivated our minds every year for so many years, I wonder, who made this movie and why? Well, Frank Capra directed the film, and the biggest thing that motivated him to direct it the way that he did was his own life story. Capra immigrated to the U.S. when he was five years old, and he began working in the film industry as a young adult with mixed results to show for his hard work. And even It's a Wonderful Life did not perform well in the box office when it was first released. Nonetheless, the fame of this film and its director grew, in no small part because Capra's life experiences influenced the way he wanted the story told. He wanted to tell a story of sacrifice and of love and what matters most in life. And so, getting to know the director adds such a deep personal layer to an already powerful story. Because when a story grips us, or when it mystifies us, we want to know why, and we want to know more. In our passage today, it's, it's like the Apostle Paul here. He's having a personal interview with Jesus, and he's recorded it for us to see. And, and Paul is telling us not only who Jesus is and, and what he has done, but what Jesus thought of those things. Paul gives us Jesus' inmost motives. He tells us why Jesus did the things that he did so that this knowledge would, would change our minds and it would change our lives. The power of the gospel should, should change our attitudes so that we have a mindset towards God, which then changes the way we treat one another. One thing that is so moving and so perplexing for us as people in verse 8 is Jesus humbled himself. This verse shatters all of our cultural categories for what power and authority are supposed to look like. It even causes some of us here today to reject Jesus because we simply can't believe this God would do such a thing as to humble himself. Yet by the end of our passage, all of us remain confronted with why this story was written this way. You may not agree with Jesus. You may not love him. But in the end, all of us will confess what he did and why he did it. This leads us to our main point this morning. Jesus' humility reveals why he came for us. Jesus' humility reveals why he came for us. Jesus came because he wanted us to know the full story of his glory as seen in our passage and how we would live differently as a result. And the way to know this glory, this beauty of the radiance of the glory of God that Pastor Jeremy unpacked for us in Hebrews 1 is through Jesus humbling himself. We need to know that Jesus came to serve us. That will serve as our first point this morning. And that Jesus came to die for us. That's our second point. And that Jesus came to reign over us. So let's learn more about how the glory of God was revealed through the most humbling acts of his son. Look with me at Philippians 2, 6 and 7. Verse 6 talks about Jesus, who was the one who was in the form of God, 
That is, one who possessed inwardly and displayed outwardly the very nature of God himself. Now, verse 6 alone raises many questions about who God is. In particular, the Trinity comes to mind. But what you need to know is Jesus is fully God. He's not a separate God. He's not even a separate form of God. He is one of the persons of the Trinity. God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. God the Son. Jesus is the second. And God the Holy Spirit who lives in us. That's the third person of the Trinity. So the Trinity is not three personalities of God. It's three persons. We don't worship three gods. We worship one God who is three in one. And in our Headwaters class, we use the shield of the Trinity as a visual aid to help communicate this sound doctrine for our church. And it's mind-boggling, I know, but, but seeing the Trinity as the Father loving the Son eternally and the Son being sent by the Father and the Spirit being anointed over the Son, all of that shows us a God who loves us so much. And he loves us so much that he sent his one and only son to serve us out of this eternal love. And that's amazing because even though the son of God existed in divine status, equal status, he did not regard his equality with God a thing to be exploited for his own advantage. But instead, verse 7 says, he emptied himself. This is not to be understood as of what did Jesus empty himself, but should be understood as into what did Jesus empty himself. Another verb Bible translators use for empty is to pour. Jesus poured himself from the highest space of God into the space of humans. He entered into our brokenness and messy and sinful space, showing that he was on a mission to serve and to save us. One of the richest people in the world is a man named Carlos Slim. He's worth around $73.3 billion. Can you imagine? In a world where half the population lives on less than $2 a day, this guy has all this wealth. Why? Because it's his by right. And now here's Jesus. All that wealth isn't even a fraction compared to Jesus' worth. Before Jesus came to earth, he was surrounded by everyone worshiping him, and the honor and the glory were all his by right. Jesus more than earned that reality, he was eternally that reality. Yet he took what was best and most desirable, and he set it aside voluntarily for this glorious purpose. Jesus came to be with us not to get our love, but to give us love. This is what it means to have the mind of Christ. For all of us here today, there is a strong desire to move towards people, to meet our needs instead of theirs. You get involved, you serve, you listen, you counsel, you do all those things you say out of love for others. But if we're being honest, we're prone to using people. You're not loving them if you go to meet your needs and not theirs. Think about how they respond after you meet their needs. Are, are they, what if they're not grateful? What do you do when you shovel your neighbor's sidewalk for them? Or you proofread your classmate's paper for them? Or you cover an extra shift at work for your colleague and you do it for them, but they don't give you any thanks? Is your sense of identity and belonging tied to how you want others to see you? Or is your belonging in how 
God sees you. Because that must be settled before you serve others. Your belonging is not in them. Jesus knew where he belonged. That's why in verse 7, Jesus took the form of a servant and served us because we refused to serve God and one another. Jesus redeemed us by being the perfect servant for his Father and for us. Because Jesus served us in the ultimate way by hanging on the cross, the people he served nailed him to, our selfishness and our pride hang there too. And now Jesus invites us to follow him by serving God and one another faithfully. And that highlights our next point this morning. Jesus came to die for us. Look with me in in verse 8 here. Let's let's consider the, the cultural context in which this verse was written. Many from the original audience would hold to what's called an honor shame worldview, whereas many Westerners in Europe and North America today hold to a guilt innocence worldview. And we'll define honor shame here in a moment, but I first want us to see how our Western worldview influences how we think about Jesus' crucifixion. We often think from the perspective of either good or bad or right or wrong, and, and that shapes our guilt innocence worldview. And so if you ask your neighbor what, what they think about Jesus' execution here, they, many of them would think that it was wrong because Jesus didn't do anything wrong because he's a moral and righteous person. And they would be right to think so, but this is not how the original audience viewed Jesus' crucifixion because they saw it from an honor-shame worldview. And as the name suggests, the goal in an honor-shame is honor, not money, not success, not innocence, honor. Honor comes from one's family, friends, or the social structures in which they reside in. And you want to bring honor to your relationships and avoid shame at all costs. And because uh, that would bring shame upon you and those in your life. And in the ancient world, the cross was the epitome of shame. It was the most shameful way to die and to be presented to the world. So a crucified person, let alone a crucified God, was an oxymoron to the Jewish people. But in verse 8, God put Jesus in the highest position of honor. And in so doing, he redefined what honor was like. Not a Roman senator, not a victor on a battlefield, but a crucified Messiah with blood on his hands. That is what honor looks like. What kind of God does that? One who is obedient. For Jesus could have chosen to step back into the personal glory of heaven, but instead he he chose to take upon himself the one thing that had no power against him, death. Jesus was born in the likeness of humanity, and yet he was distinct because he was immortal. But he subjected his immortality to death, showing that he held nothing back from his purpose. Paul tells us that this was done as an act of obedience to God, and death was the mode, not the master in his obedience. This is the mind of Christ. He looked at himself, at his Father, and at us, and for obedience, he held nothing back. And now we can have this mindset too. You may think that's, that's great. Jesus set the example for obedience, and he invites us to be like him. But what if I don't feel like doing that? Or you think, I'd like to be obedient, but my life is so hard right now. It's hard to feel up for doing much of anything. We live in a generation that rightly values emotional health, 
but scoffs at the suggestion that our feelings are not a factor in being obedient to God. Let me be clear, our emotions are a factor and we should care about them. Jesus often showed us how he felt about things. He showed us his true feelings in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 26, 42 says, Jesus went away and prayed, My father, if this, and he's referring to his impending death here on a cross, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Here's how one pastor reflects on that verse. Because God is fully human, Jesus is fully human. He understands you. Because he's human, he knows what you're going through, so you can go to him. Have you been betrayed? He's been betrayed. Have you been lonely? He's been lonely. Have you died? No, but he has. And when you die, he will be there because he's faced it first for you. He's been there. He knows what it is like, and he knows about all your troubles. When you don't feel like obeying, the answer isn't to disobey, nor is it to dismiss our feelings. Emotional honesty and godly obedience don't have to be opponents in a tug of war. They can be on the same team. Jesus calls us to come to him, not with pasted on smiles, but with appropriate sighs and questions. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were not emotionally honest. Many were fakers, trying to to hide their sins and appear righteous before others. And Jesus called out their hidden motives. But when one of them came by night to ask Jesus deep questions, he welcomed him. And that's what he does for us. When a funk of irritation, selfishness, lust, or lethargy settles in and it's hard to obey, we should pray honest prayers. Here's my heart, Lord, with all its entanglements and temptations help me. And our Father answers that cry, forgiving us and empowering us to do what he has called us to do. And in total dependence on Jesus, we we move our hands and our feet and our words and our thoughts down the path of obedience. River City Church, this is honest Christianity. But even if we're not being emotionally honest, is obeying God when we don't feel like it inauthentic? The word authentic captures much of our cultural moment because our culture values being genuine and true to yourself. And as Christians, we should ask, which self do we mean, the old or the new? Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, Paul instructs the church, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, And put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And I love what author and church leader Trish Donahue has to say about this passage. She says, being true to the new self often means rejecting selfish urges and inclinations that feel like comfy old blankets. It means helping someone when we feel like curling up in a ball of self-pity, expressing gratitude when we feel like complaining, and serving when we would rather be served. These choices are unnatural to the old self, but completely authentic to the new self as we grow in Christ-likeness. Like a parent that doesn't want to wait for their child to feel like obeying before they raise them to do what is right, God is working in our hearts to form a mindset of obedience that is after Jesus. Our passage teaches us that denying our own will in favor of God's is proof of faith and maturity. 
That means the, the grinding of gears that we often experience when, you know, as we attempt to follow God's plan. That, that's not cause for, for questioning our authenticity. It's actually reason to celebrate. We're moving in the right direction. As we make sacrifices in life in order to honor Christ, by the power of his spirit, we begin to love what he loves. God helps us not only to obey him, but to want to obey him. This is why we've, we made it a goal this year of, to capture stories of God's ongoing faithfulness in our lives and, and why we're capturing stories of initial faith because God called us to come to him when we didn't feel like it. The one who intercepted our sprint towards hell welcomes us now into his presence. And Jesus is the one who was lifted high on the cross for us, and now he's been lifted high into glory and reigns over us. Which brings us to our third point. Jesus came to reign over us. Look with me in verses 9 through 11. It's not that Jesus was God and and then he stopped being God for a while, and then he became human, and then a servant, and died on a cross, and and now he's back to being God. That's not what we believe. It's because Jesus was God that he became human, he became a servant, and he died as the perfect self-expression of the true God. That is what God is like. Michael, are, are you saying God is a servant? Yes. Are you saying God is humble? Yes. He's others focused. Are you saying God is the Jesus we read about? Yes, that is his character. And Jesus did not stay hung up on a cross or or lying in a tomb. To be exalted means Jesus was raised from physical death to life. And then he was raised from our space up to God's space. And he was enthroned and now he's praised. And we praise him because he is worthy of it. His resume speaks for itself. We worship because this is how we are to live. As one pastor says, we are not to have empty or vain conceit. Jesus emptied himself. We are to value others above ourselves. Jesus humbled himself. We are to have the mindset of Jesus, this mind that is in Christ Jesus. This passage is about why Jesus came. And it's because there's nothing more glorious than the story of redemption he is writing in our hearts, how we are changed before God and one another. The gospel changes how we treat our spouse, our friends, our family, our neighbors, our family, coworkers, roommates, and that person who drives you up the wall. You are a follower of Jesus, so follow Jesus around. Copy him. Mimic him. How would Jesus treat that person? We know he would humble himself. Since Jesus is God, some of you need to be more hopeful about your future. Another pastor says this, since it is Jesus who has entered your space and says that he will never leave you, and if he is so committed to you, why then are you so pessimistic about breaking this or that habit? Why are you pessimistic about never having any joy in life? Jesus isn't just a joyful person He is joy. If you look at yourself and think, great things are never going to happen in my life, and say in the same breath that Christ is your Savior, then you're not thinking. Jesus said in John 14, 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. 
We're to follow Jesus' example of action, intention, and initiative because Christ's humility did not restrain his whole enterprise. It activated it. G.K. Chesterton saw the rise of ambitionless humility among Christians in the social and economic world of the 18th century Great Britain. He called it humility in the wrong place. Chesterton appealed to a return to Christ's humility when he described his humility as a spur that prevented a man from stopping and the wrong humility as a nail in his boot that prevented him from going on. I think that's a helpful image. When we become too modest to aspire, we have ceased being humble. Humility should, should never be an excuse for inactivity. Humility provides the guardrails for our aspirations, ensuring that they remain on God's road and moving in the direction of his purpose. If we're too humble to dream, then we may have unknowingly settled into Chesterton's ambitionless humility. And since Jesus is your God, your mind has to be changed by this. The mind of humility gives us a whole new dynamic for doing things for the glory of God. Without it, Exploration dies, research stops, kids spoil, industry stalls, causes fail, civilizations crumble, and the gospel stands still. Because our passage shows us Jesus came to save both the spiritual and the physical, those enterprises can be redeemed. Jesus cares about you cleaning up your heart and your habits, and he cares about you cleaning up your neighborhood. What you do with your body and your soul and the world around you matter. Because in the new creation, you're not going to be a a disembodied intelligence hovering around. We're, We're going to have new bodies that sing, and we're going to dance, and we're going to work. We're going to do all these things untainted by sin, death, and decay. There's going to be the physical, and there's going to be the spiritual, and they will dwell in unity, just as the Son dwells with the Father in our future home. And have you ever considered that, that in this new home, row after row after row of angels are bowing down before the throne of God at this very moment? Why are they bowing? Because of his brightness and his holiness and his utter perfection. They're, they're shielding their eyes right now. No one can withstand his brilliance and splendor and might. And all the while, we, we go about our days here right now on earth. There is the most holy God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who is being worshipped by cherubim and seraphim. They are falling down before him. Can you imagine such a scene? It's happening right now. You know who was aware of Jesus' royalty in the Bible? The wise men in the nativity story. When they arrived at the manger where Mary and Joseph lay their newborn baby, the wise men bowed down to Jesus. Matthew 2.11 says they paid homage to him with their precious gifts. This passage in Philippians calls to mind two scenes that seem utterly different from one another, one of high exaltation and the other of low humility. But in both scenes, we have the same God revealing how glorious he is. Jesus, the one who was born in a manger, who was seated at the right hand of the throne of God, is the one who bears the scars on his hands from being hung on a cross. And he reigns over us because he died for us. And this is why he came. And this is why we can celebrate Christmas.
Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.